Hello and welcome to the Researcher Podcast, your regular look at the research that's making waves in the scientific community and the people behind it. My name is Joe Fenton and I will be your host today. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Classen from the University of Connecticut. Jonathan is the author of Defining Microbiome Function. Today we'll be finding out a bit more about both the paper and the person behind it. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming and speaking to us today. Thank you for having me. So before we delve into defining microbiome function, which is the name of your paper, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic career so far? Sure. Um, So uh, I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of Connecticut, uh, where I study uh, symbiosis. It's sort of a a major focus area of, of the department here at Connecticut. In particular, I work on fungus growing ants, which are these uh, these lovely ants that uh, that they they collect plant material uh, uh, and but they don't eat it themselves. They they feed it to a mushroom that they grow underground. I mean, it's not actually a mushroom; it's a fungus. But that's the way to think of it if you're not familiar with the system. And then, so that fungus will eat the plant material, and the ants will will eat eat that themselves. So, uh, uh, one of the interesting things about these ants is they also host uh, uh, antibiotic producing bacteria on their body. And that's kind of how I got into the system is that I was looking for um, ways to understand how we can understand how antibiotics evolve. And it, it kind of stems from some work that I was doing as a PhD student, uh, which I did at the University of Alberta in, in Canada. Um, and uh, in that research, I was using a lot of uh, computational techniques to look at pigment biosynthesis. And computational tools are great, but you you can't do ex- sort of experimental tests like you can in the organism and test actually measure fitness and things like that. So I'd been looking for systems where I could perform those sorts of tests where we could sort of explicitly get to fitness and, and what's actually going on there. And when I heard about these ants, I jumped on board that. So um, I was able to get a, a fellowship from the Canadian government to do my postdoctoral work at the University of Wisconsin with Cameron Curry, who is a real pioneer in this fungus growing ant system. And I've been able to keep that going now at my lab in Connecticut. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. This is one of my favorite parts of the podcast is just finding out about people's past and their current interests and research. So defining microbiome function, the name of your current paper that's trending on the researcher app. Could you give us a brief overview? Sure. Well, so the whole thing kind of arises, I and mean, even really out of that story, and it comes back to this question that we keep asking ourselves in the lab. Um, and that question basically is, we can often see that something is happening in our symbiosis, but how do we know if that's important? Right. I mean, you could easily have. I mean, bacteria can be transported very easily in the air, in food, in the environment, all these sorts of things. So it doesn't seem very unusual for a bacterium to land in, in our case, on an ant. Right. And so maybe we can isolate that, and maybe it does something interesting. Right. But how do we know that it's important for the whole functioning of the symbiosis? or if it's just something that blew in from the air. And so that question set up this whole sort of philosophical line of thought, right? How do we define whether or not something is functional? And that turned out to be 
an interesting question because there's this large body of philosophy of science literature that deals with exactly this question. And it sort of comes out to a bit of a messy answer. There's the, the philosophers have come up with two really completely independent ways of defining function. One that's just based on you finding something and it, it doing something and, and that whatever you measure it doing, that's one type of function. It's a, so they call that a causal role function. And it's very phenomenological, right? It depends on what you're measuring and where you're measuring it. But then there's this second type of function. And in my lab, I think this is more what we've been more interested in. Um, but it has to do with this sort of idea of not just what phenotype is happening or that you can measure, but also why is that phenotype existing? What's the evolutionary rationale for it being there? And so the philosophers call that a selected effect function. And so how you measure these things is very different, right? And very and quite difficult. But I think that as as we thought about this more and more in our system and then more broadly in, in the microbiome literature and in humans and all this sort of thing, we realized that that these things weren't spelled out very well. And as a result of this, it was very easy for us to identify, um, even in our own speaking about it, places where we would use one type of experiment that would test one kind of function and then start thinking about it in terms of the other type of function, which we hadn't really done the tests for, right? They, those two types of, of function required different types of tests. So writing this was sort of a way of clarifying in my own mind what sorts of experiments we would need to make what sorts of conclusions. And, and I hope that that's, uh, the hope is that that's useful to the broader community as well. So you talk about these two philosophical standpoints in this paper. So just how current are these, are these theories that you're talking about? So a lot of the important papers dealing with function, uh, I mean, the, the two schools of thought, those papers came out in the 70s. So these conversations have been going on for a little while. But really, it dates back to things that have been going on much earlier, um, even back into the 50s and before that. Um, things like uh, in ethology, Tim Berners uh, uh, had, had laid out a, a scheme a, a, that separates these sort of phenomenological aspects from evolutionary aspects. So in the broader bio, biology community, these discussions have been going on for a while and have been gradually codified over time. Um, historically, one of the, the I think, things that inspired me the most was uh, in more recent years um, with the ENCODE project in genomics. So this is a big multi-center project where they were trying to sequence, uh, use, use a whole bunch of sequencing techniques to figure out all of the functional elements in the human genome. Um, and by functional elements, they basically meant anything that would give a signal in their assays. And their assays are for things like will bind a promoter, uh, will cause some change in DNA structure, as well as, as, as things like produce a protein. And when that, those papers came out, so this is about 10 years ago now, maybe not quite that long, but in that ballpark, um, there was a, a, a fairly large backlash from the evolutionary biology community because the ENCODE project in their first paper made this statement 
that something like 80% of the human genome was functional because they were able to measure a phenotype. And that contrasted with what the evolutionary biologists, the population geneticists, had been saying um, about the fraction of the human genome that was under selection, which was under 10%. Um, and so you have these, these, these two results that gave very, very different uh, answers to how much of the human genome was functional. And as they worked out how these different results were arrived, they realized that they were talking about the two different types of function. The ENCODE project people were talking about the causal role function, the phenomena that they measured, while the evolutionary biologists and the population geneticists were thinking about the selected effects function, how much of the human genome was under selection. So those more recent conversations, I think, had a more direct impact on me because I'd been reading that stuff during uh, my PhD and postdoc. Um, and so I, that's where I started to go back from. Um, and I think that 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 other fields like microbiome science, there's the p same potential for these controversies to erupt. And so I think it's good to have these conversations. So in your paper, you use the example of the human gut in order to argue your case. And I'm just wondering, how come you chose the human gut over any other type of organism? Sure. So... Um, a lot of the excitement in, in, in the microbiome world right now is around the human gut. And uh, even though I study ants, right, we're, we study ants because it's a much simpler system than the human gut that we can manipulate a lot easier because um, human gut research is so complex. Now, in the human gut literature, one of the things that we noticed was that there was often a tendency for people to make claims about what the microbiome was doing that I don't know if they've been fully tested, right? So to say something like humans and their gut microbiome have co-evolved, well, to say that they're co-evolved requires a very specific set of tests. And those tests, to my knowledge, have not been very well done. And so uh, there's been an ongoing conversation around those types of microbiomes. And I think that we wanted to be part of that even though the original ideas were inspired by things we were doing in ants. There's also this broader idea, um, and, and this is not just the human gut, but something, uh, uh, a discussion around this idea of holobionts and hologenomes. And the idea here is that the holobiont is a, a single unit that contains both a host and its microbiome. Uh, and there have been lots of questions in some of these conversations we've been a part of as well, is how does this sort of more integrated mode of thinking, it's not just a human, it's not just a bacterium, it's not just an ant, right? How does considering these things as a whole um, change the way we think about, about human and microbiome evolution and ecology? And so a lot of that conversation is also um, been in the human microbiome world. And so that was something else that we wanted to engage in as part of the piece. So at the end of your piece, you call for the cross-disciplinary training in logic and philosophical microbiome research. Just how popular is this movement becoming? Oh, that's a great question. I think, uh, so where a lot of that has come out of is is um, uh, talking to Arturo Casadevall uh, he's at John Hopkins, and he's really been a leader in this uh, uh, sort of thinking about what we need to do with graduate student education in particular, 
and how to make that more holistic and to to promote responsible and reproducible research, all, all these good things. And and uh, so he's got a really nice program that's been going for a couple of years now at John Hopkins that's been applying some of these things and the the philosophical cross training um, in things like uh, really core logic and how do you form hypotheses and test them and the difference between um, discovery driven research and 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 hypothesis testing and, and these sorts of things um, are all part of that and. And we've been having similar discussions in our program as well that I've been uh, part of and working towards. And, and uh, even in our program, I, I currently teach a course that's uh, in, about professional development for PhD students. And so part of that is thinking about how do you formulate hypotheses that you can test in your project and things like that. So uh, I see it as something that's coming. And I think that um, as PhD um, student education continues to evolve. We're going to see more and more of this sort of thing. Um, part of it because we're realizing, I think, as a, a community of, of teachers, that this is at the core of what we should be teaching. Um, and I think also that there's a, a demand for this uh, broader training among the students uh, and sort of an understanding that, that discipline-specific knowledge is great but throughout your career, you shift into different places. And so these core fundamental things are what's uh, the most portable and the most transferable and the most useful to their careers going forward. So I think it's early days still, but I think that, that it, it's something that's up and coming, this idea of, of cross-disciplinary training. So with this piece and its philosophical standpoint, has it been a continuation of previous work that you've done before? Yeah, in some ways it has. And I think it goes back to that idea of the questions that we had coming into this system and uh, the, that being the fungus growing ants. And one of the, the things, even as I was starting my postdoc, um, is that the, there was this established paradigm of there being one particular bacterium that was a symbiont of these ants and produced antibiotics. Um, uh, that would protect the ants and and their fungus garden from from pathogens and and so the, 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 that's the basic biology of the system. And right about the time when I was uh, looking to start my postdoc, there are a number of papers that started coming out saying, "Oh, we isolated these other microbes, and they also produce antibiotics, and maybe they're important." And so in my mind, that was the real genesis of it because I had to wrestle with reconciling those results where they can isolate things, uh, isolate microbes that would have the bioactivity that I was interested in, um, but they didn't fit the sort of existing paradigm of this one particular microbe that was the symbiosis. And so thinking through that and this idea of how do we understand, how can we test what antibiotics do in the wild is actually the subject of an earlier paper I wrote in uh, Current Opinions in Insect Science in, in 2014. And and that thinking led us into this sort of broader uh, idea of, well, maybe just beyond antibiotics, how do we generally know how to test these types of questions? And uh, uh, so, so this particular paper is a continuation out of that earlier work, really pondering related questions. So my previous question went back in time 
And now I want to push things a lot further forward and ask you, what do you think the impacts of this paper could become? Where do you think your field could move as a result of this specific piece? Well, I, I think the experimental tests are, are what's going to come next. And um, for us, uh, we're going back to the antibiotics uh, and, and really applying some of these principles that we've worked out both in this paper and the previous work um, in our system and to be able to tell really who's important and who's just coming along for the ride. Um, I think other people are going to do similar things, um, but in different ways, right? Using germ-free animals and, and, and contrasting um, the phenotypes of those animals versus ones with particular microbes and, 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 and the dynamics that exist there. Um, one thing I'm really looking forward to is, uh, and I think is, is an up-and-coming thing in the field, is to seeing how these sorts of relationships change through time. I think currently the field is, and, and, and us as well, uh, my lab, is very much taking snapshots and not thinking about how to integrate those things over time. But when you're measuring fitness, it's all about how things change over multiple generations. And so I, uh, I'm really looking forward to that sort of direction. Uh, we also approach that slightly differently in that we are sampling things over wide geographic ranges. And, and because we can do that, we can figure out how the evolutionary history of the populations that we're working with. And so we can work backwards in time in some respects that way as well. So I'm really looking forward to testing these models that now we've established in these papers. And I think that's going to be the real next step. So obviously this piece has been published in a very high impact journal. And it is, of course, very new. So what kind of responses have you received so far? The response has been very positive so far. And, uh, and I think that, uh, I mean, it, it was nice to, 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 to publish in Nature Microbiology. And, and I really appreciate the editorial work and, and the work that they did there. And even just in that publication process, there were lots of great discussions with the reviewers um, who had very different viewpoints and, and, and sort of starting places. And even just the discussion with that high level of review was really great to really ratchet down these ideas. Um, I'm happy to see people picking it up. Uh, and it's being discussed uh, in all sorts of places, and hopefully that will continue going forward. So now we're going to move on to the more of the personal questions of this podcast. And I'm going to ask you, who has influenced yourself, your work, and your academic career the most so far? In terms scientifically or just generally? Well, you can pick scientifically or generally. It's, it's completely up to you. So for me, uh, I think the people who have influenced me the most scientifically are people who think very, very broadly and very, very rigorously and can back it up with uh, really concrete experimental tests. And I, the, uh, the one person that comes to mind immediately is Angela Douglas, uh, who has been very supportive of, of the work that I've done uh, and who I've always admired for her ability to think into very broad terms. I mean, she writes textbooks about symbiosis uh, and, and to really 
create a framework by which we think about the field. And, and so that's always been very inspirational to me and in something, maybe not to write textbooks, but uh, definitely aspiring to that high level of thinking to guide the work that we do. So you're an academic, you're a lecturer, you're an assistant professor at the University of Connecticut. So what's your week like? How much time do you spend reading, researching, being in the lab, teaching, preparing for classes? Good question. So um, here at UConn, we're a primarily a research-focused university. So I'd say about half my time goes into research-related activities. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I'm at the bench doing research most of the time. In fact, it typically means that I am either having conversations with my students about their experiments that they're going to do or working on computational analyses or paper writing and things like that. It also includes, and for me, this is a real priority, uh, taking time to read as much of the literature as I can. And uh, it's a bit of a fight as a professor. I think that that's something that we lose because our time is, is much more compressed. Uh, the demands on it are higher. Um, but for me, that's a priority. And I think that that's reflected in a paper like the one we're talking about, is that I think it really stems from taking time to read and being able to read these uh, these other disciplines and be familiar with uh, those those things that have happened that are outside of my field and then being able to apply those to the work that we're doing. So I, I personally find that very inspirational. Um, so so most of my time is research and and. It's not all hands-on, although we still go out in the field and do field work and things like that. Um, probably the rest of my time is split between teaching and uh, and uh, service to the university, to the scientific community. So that's uh, things like being on committees for other students and for facilities and to the community is doing peer review and grant review and things like that. Um, for teaching, I... I my teaching load is is I teach one course per semester. I've already mentioned the career developing development and writing course that I do for our first year PhD students just as they're settling into a lab. Uh, so I teach that every spring um, and help them craft their theses and get that together. Uh, how do you plan a project and how do you write about that? Um, and then in the fall, I teach a computational biology lab, which is trying to introduce undergraduate students to the basics of genomics. We try to take people who have had no computational experience at all and show them what modern sequencing data types look like and what to do with those. So that's a lot of fun. Both of those classes are very hands-on and it keeps me really fresh in the field, um, both from the professional development side and also the genomics side. Um, and, and so those are very fun. It's obviously all... Um academics are extremely busy. You live in a world that is publish or perish. And obviously you've got classes and a life outside of academia. So do you have any tricks that you've used to increase your own academic productivity at all? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest challenges is, is uh, balancing the, all the personal things that go on with my life with the academic stuff. And, uh, for me, one of the things I appreciate the most about the academic life is the flexibility of it. So the amount of science that I do in the parking lot outside of my kids' dojo is just 
it boggles my mind continuously. Um, I think being a computational scientist and, and shifting my actual hands-on research to computational work uh, has also been really helpful for that because it's allowed me to connect and do work at, at, from strange places and strange hours. So that also facilitates that sort of thing. Um, I think from an organizational perspective, uh, I really appreciate uh, how my lab is able to accommodate the, the, the constraints on my time. And so uh, they're very good about uh, keeping things scheduled and organized uh, so that, that, that we can stay really in touch with the research and keep it going, um, but that they also know what's going on. So uh, one of the things we set out very early with my lab is, is on the website, there's just sort of a list of expectations from both of us. And, and that's been really helpful for us to be able to structure our lab relationship around some sort of explicit uh, uh, things that keep us both organized. So, so that's up there for everyone to see, and maybe that's helpful for some people, but it's been very good for us uh, in terms of keeping everybody on the same page and working in the same direction. So for my last question on this episode of Researcher Radio, I'm going to ask you for your one piece of advice for anybody who is just about to begin their PhD, or might just be starting a career in academia. Just starting your okay, so just starting a career in academia, it's a great job. It really is a great job, and the the people that you will meet, and the ideas that they will inspire in you, um, is a lot of fun. A lot of fun, and especially working with students is inspiring because they come at come at it with really fresh eyes and watching them come up with their projects uh, is great. And, and helping them succeed as people uh, is probably one of the most gratifying parts of the job. For people just starting their PhD, uh, I guess maybe my one piece of advice to them is to be thinking about where you might ultimately end up. And I think one of the most important things with that is to keep your eyes open in terms of the diversity of things that you could end up doing, right? An academic job is wonderful, um, but there's so much other stuff out there that I think most of my students coming in don't realize, and they discover over time. Um, but keep your eyes open. What you're doing is applicable very, very wide, widely, and the skills that you're generating in your program are super valuable. Uh, even outside of your little subject area. So I think the prospects are great. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for that one piece of advice. So that's just all about time we've got for today. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Until next time. You've been listening to The Researcher Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. You can also follow us online at www.researcher-app.com. Or, alternatively, you can drop me an email at joseph.fenton at researcherapp.com. Researcher is free to use on iOS, Android, or on your web browser. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review.